Amen. Amazing grace and my chains are gone. When I went down to the river to pray, I almost heard Allison Krauss coming through there. It was... <clears throat> Love Allison Krauss's music. Anyway, that's another time, another subject for another time. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you are, if you are very uh, astute this morning, you notice that the same text and same title is there as last week. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that I was sick. And uh, not only was I physically feeling bad, but I was mentally feeling bad. And I left out of here and I thought, I really, I really butchered that, that text. And that's an important text. And that was one of those times when, you know, I knew I should have stayed home, but I said, no, I'm going to go do it and should have listened to my first inclination and stayed home. But I didn't. So I want to go back and readdress Blessed are the meek, chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't want to look at it the same way that I did last week. I want to look at it a little differently, but I want us to, I want us to get a grasp of exactly what our Lord is saying there as best we can. I want to remind you of something about this Sermon on the Mount. I'll probably do this as we move through it every three or four weeks because it's important to understand. I want you to understand that we just sang a while ago about the Word of God and the King speaking. I want you to understand that when we read this, we are hearing the King speak. This is the King. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords the king of all creation and all the universe. This is the king above all kings who is speaking here. That's important to remember. We are coming to this text not just to hear some words and not just to hear a sermon, but we're coming to this text to hear a word from the Lord. And so he's talked about blessed are the poor in spirit for there is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Talking about mourning over our sin. And now he says blessed are the meek or the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Probably there's nowhere in all of scripture, all of the New Testament that you will find what we might call the manifesto of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand, as we said that first Sunday that we looked at this sermon, that this is not a new idea. I had Ricky read the text from Leviticus this morning. You don't tend to think of Leviticus when you hear the Sermon on the Mount. But I believe that that passage in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, could really be counted as the Old Testament counterpart to the Sermon on the Mount. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is talking about how his disciples are to be countercultural, how his disciples are to live lives that are different from the world around them. They're not to be like the world. And, and in Leviticus chapter 18, God speaks to Moses and he said, I'm calling you out of Egypt and where I'm taking you, you're not to live like the Egyptians lived and you're not to live like those who possess the land now live. You are to be a different, a peculiar, an unusual people, not like your culture. 
And when Jesus talks in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon, chapter 5, 6, and 7 out of Matthew, the thing he is bombarding, the thing he is beating home, the thing he is wanting us to see is that when Jesus Christ has done a work in your life by his grace that we sang about this morning, that you will be different from the world. You are to live counter-cultural. Your character is to be different from the character of all those around you. That's important to hear. That's important to understand as we come to this text. We saw that in a nutshell, this sermon is, is summarized back in chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus just simply said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is at hand, and we are now part of that kingdom, and are to live like members of that kingdom. A key to understanding this whole sermon, though, is to understand some contrast. If you look at the New Testament, look at the, the Gospels, Jesus quite, quite often looked at those who were religious leaders in his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And he would look at them and he would say, you know, you are a bunch of, you are a bunch of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. They didn't like that. But basically he was saying, you are slithering through life as a religious leader, but you are misleading the people. You are not telling the truth. You are, you are liars in what you say many times. Or we'd look at them and say, you're like whitewashed graves. You look good on the outside because graves are painted up and decorated and flowers are put at it and everything looks great on the outside. But on the inside, what's there? Death. Rotting death. Rotting flesh. And he would say, the Pharisees, you're like a bunch of whitewashed graves. You look great on the outside, but what's on the inside is dead. So he makes that contrast throughout this whole sermon. Matter of fact, if you really want a key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular, I think you need to understand Jesus saying that there's a great difference in the, and I'll use the word religion here in a, in a, in a proper sense, there's a difference in the religion of Christianity and the religion of the Pharisees. There, there's a difference in the religion of those who follow Christ and those who just follow tradition. Matter of fact, he'll make several contrasts. He'll talk about the contrast between true heart religion and empty religion. Heart religion versus empty religion. That is, that that comes from the inside. That which wells up and demonstrates itself because there's been an inner change within. And that which goes through the motions. That's, that which just kind of plays the game. Looks good on the outside, but it's dead on the inside. He'll make another contrast. He'll talk about true freedom versus legalism. True freedom versus legalism. I mean, the Pharisees were the legalist of legalists. They had a law for everything. They had a rule for everything. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't do this. Don't walk there. Don't go so far on the Sabbath. You know, all these, all these rules. And, and quite honestly, the people who, who tried to follow the Pharisees became somewhat neurotic. Ooh, did I take one step too many on this day? Whoops, did I touch a dead body? Whoops, did I eat a piece of pork? Oops, did a Gentile touch that plate before I ate from it? I mean, it just, it was ridiculous. And they went through all these legalisms. Now we look at those 
<coughs> excuse me, we look at those Pharisees and we say, boy, that legalism is a bad thing. But then many times as Baptists, we have our legalisms. And they're just external. Uh, we, we believe we're Christians because we don't do certain things or, or we're Christians because we do certain things. And, and Jesus wanted to see you're not a Christian because what you do or what you don't do. You're a Christian because of what you are at your heart. The heart of your life. Has there been a change? Is there, is there true freedom in your life? Not, not licentiousness, not freedom just to go out and live like you want to live, but freedom that comes in Christ to say, you know, I'm not bound by a bunch of rules and regulations like the Pharisees were. It'll also make a contrast between true religion and distorted religion. I mean, folks, the Jewish faith did not start out like that. Started out with, 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 with sacrifice and, and, and worshiping God after the law was given. And the law was, if you remember, ten things. By the time of the Pharisees, they had drawn it out to about 750 things. The law was good. The faith of the Jews was good. It, it worshipped Yahweh and it looked forward to the coming Messiah. He said, there's one coming. There's one that was prophesied way back in Genesis right after the fall when God said to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I mean, that was the first, first message of the gospel. That there was one coming. There was a Messiah coming. There was the promised one coming. And they were to look for him and wait for him and follow him. And when he came, they said, whoa, 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 you don't follow our regulations. You don't live up to our rules. And so I'm sorry, we can't follow you. And they rejected him and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus said that was a distorted religion. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for one major error. They had substituted an external form for an internal reality. Jesus is interested in what takes place on the inside. In the heart. When everything else is stripped away, the question is, what is your heart like? What is your character like? What's really taking place in your life? Is it truth? Or is it, as we'll talk about in depth tonight in the Truth Project, is it believing a lie? And a lie is a distortion. Of what God has said. A lot of people, a lot of people in church today that look at this, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, and oh, they admire them. Oh, they, they admire them. They say, oh, that's the greatest piece of, that's the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It's so beautiful. It flows so nicely. It, it says such nice things. When in reality, it cuts at the very heart. Jesus is really not interested in you and me admiring the Sermon on the Mount. He's interested in the Sermon on the Mount penetrating our life and by His grace and by His power, our obedience. In the same way that, 
that, that Moses was told by God back in Leviticus 18. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like those in the land where you're going. Don't follow their ways. Don't, don't live like them, but obey me. great thing is that now in, in Christ, we have a new motivation. We have a new power within us that comes from the changed life. Don't admire this sermon. Learn to obey. Learn to let it change your very life. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. For they shall inherit the earth. We talked last week about how this is one of the few words Jesus ever used to describe himself. He said, I'm meek. He wasn't weak. He wasn't powerless. He was probably the most powerful man in every respect that ever walked on the face of the earth. He was not just a man. He was God-man. He was, he was the, the, the God who had come down from heaven and taken on flesh to dwell among us. That's, that's an important understanding there. He was meek. He, he had his strength under control. That's what meekness is. Power under control. Strength that's bridled with gentleness like a horse is bridled that it might be useful and if our power if our strength if our emotions if everything about us is not bridled by meekness we will never know what it means to inherit the earth we'll never know what it means to truly walk as Christ walked in in any semblance of manner on this earth I find it interesting that that meekness comes between blessed are those who mourn over their sin and blessed are those, we'll talk about next week, who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. It comes right in the middle of talking about mourning for sin and hungering after righteousness. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think, that, I think it's there not by accident. I don't think he just willy-nilly threw these out in any order. I think there's a, there's a pattern to it. That we will never be meek until we mourn for our sins. We will never be meek in the biblical sense until we truly, truly see who we are in Christ. And who we are apart from Christ. And we mourn over the fact that we disobey. <coughs> Excuse me. We mourn over the fact that we are not what God has called us to be. It breaks our hearts when we disobey when we come to that morning then we're able to we're able to see a meekness in our life we are broken before God we are mourning before God and meekness flows out of a brokenness brokenness before God so I think it's significant he puts it there and then when we're meek when we don't think we are the Greatest gift God ever gave the earth. We think we're meek when we're meek before Him. Lord, I need you. I, I have to have you. I, I can do nothing apart from you. Then there's a hunger that wells up within us for His righteousness. We'll talk about that next week. But meekness is the key to understanding hungering. After righteousness. We have to understand the dimensions of meekness. We have to understand that first of all there is meekness toward God. 
Meekness toward God is, is submitting to his will. Meekness toward God is saying, as Jesus did in the, the Garden of Eden, Lord, I don't want this to go, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to go to that cross. I don't want to be that atoning sacrifice, that propitiation for the sins of all these people. I don't want that. It's going to be painful. It's going to be, it's going to be horrible taking on their sins. But not my will, but your will to be done. It's Jesus saying, I didn't come to do my own will. I didn't come to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. So I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. I am the spokesman for Almighty God. And you know, we're supposed to be ambassadors of the king. And we are supposed to be those who don't go out to speak our own word, do our own thing, what we want. We're to go out and be ambassadors speaking the, the message and the words of the one who sent us. Meekness toward God means submission to His will. It also means a sensitivity to His Word. A sensitivity to His Word. That is, there are times when I'm going to come to this Word, I do it every day that I live. I'll do it tomorrow again, or probably today. That I will come to passages in the Scripture that just scream out at me. Haynes, you don't get it. You're missing it. <laughs> you know? You're just missing it. And I have to think, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> I can do one of two things. I can say, that must be just a guilty feeling I've got that really doesn't have any meaning to it. I can say, well, it's the Holy Spirit taking the word and bringing it into my heart and saying, you need to hear this, Haynes. You need to hear this. And I can either say, well, I'll be sensitive to and, and, and pliable to the Word of God, or I can say, oh, that'll be all right. I don't have to worry about that. But meekness is a sensitivity to God's Word when the Spirit of God takes that Word and pierces our heart with it. Now, that would imply that to be meek, you have to be in the Word, <laughs> you know? That would imply that for meekness to be a part of your, of your life, to, to know the will of God, submit to the will of God, be sent to the Word of God, means you've got to be in the Word of God regularly, purposely. But then there's also a meekness toward men. A meekness toward God is primary. It's the first thing. But then there's a meekness toward man. There's... There's an understanding that, that we don't lord it over other people. That we, we don't demand of other people that they do what we want to do. But we seek to minister to them. <coughs> we, seek to, we seek to be a part of their lives for their good, not for our good. Not for our pleasures to be met. We meet toward men because we want to minister to them. It, it, I, I like what... What Rich, uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said about this, he said, you know, true meekness toward men, other men, is opposed to anger, it's opposed to malice, it's opposed to revenge, and it's opposed to evil speaking. And he would take evil speaking there and make that the same thing as gossip. Meekness is opposed to this. If we're meek toward others, we won't be angry toward them with a, with a burning anger of, you did me wrong. 
We won't seek malice against them to do to them something that, uh, that will get even. We won't seek revenge. We won't gossip. Gossip to make us feel better because we're not like them. Watson makes a good point that, that meekness is that bearing of injuries. That, that we are injured, we are hurt, but when we are meek before God and meek with other people, we don't try to blast back at them. God has to work with me on that all the time. A little confession here. Good for the soul, bad for the reputation, but that's true. God has to deal with me that all the time because, man, you hurt me, you do something toward me, I, my, my old sin nature just kind of wells up and says, I just wait. Just wait. Jesus says the meek will bear with the injuries of others. They, they, they don't, they're not a doormat. They're not a, they're not a milk toast, Casper milk toast, but they, but they hold their strength in check for the good of the other, to minister to them. And, and meekness is demonstrated in, in forgiveness. It's, it's demonstrated in forgiveness. And, and I mean by really forgiving, by, by forgiving that person the wrong against you. Now, Understand, and, and a lot of people struggle with this, forgiveness does not necessarily mean forgetfulness. In other words, we say, well, you, you've never really forgiven unless you've forgotten. Baloney. I can tell you a hundred different situations where I have forgiven people, but every now and then, because I've got this adversary who wants to remind me of things and try to get me all riled up, will say, but don't you remember what they did? Sometimes I have to confess my own sin there to God and say, God, I've already forgiven that person. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness means not remembering it against them again. I've said that to you before, and I'll say it a thousand more times, but it's important. Forgiveness is not remembering it against them. If you've done something against me and you come to me and we speak, I may, I may very well think, well, I remember the time when they did this. But I won't remember it saying, I sure wish I could get at them for it. I hope they burn for what they did. That's, that's not forgiveness. But real forgiveness is not holding it against them, not remembering it against them again. It's a full forgiveness. It's a complete forgiveness. And it has to come often many times because we hurt. But you know, think about that. Really and fully and often, you know what God does <laughs> with you and me? I love what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, you know, you are to forgive one another. You're to forbear with one another. You're to care about one another and forgive one another just as God in Christ Jesus has also forgiven you. Yeah, I wish he'd have left off that last part. I really do. I wish he'd have just said, you know, forbear with one another and forgive one another. Okay, I can do that. No, no. You forgive them as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
How has he forgiven me? He's really forgiven me. He's completely forgiven me. He's fully forgiven me. And, and sadly, he, he forgives me often. But because of that cross, because of that sacrifice, because of my substitute there, he forgives. I mean, it's, it's sort of a godlike trait. And Paul says, because God has forgiven you, and you know, next time you have a hard time forgiving somebody, I don't care what it's for, I don't care what it's for. The next time you have a hard time forgiving somebody and you're struggling with meekness in this area, why don't you just back up and say, okay, let me sit down here and let me think about what God has forgiven in my life. And if you're honest, if you're honest, It'll be greater than anything someone's done against you. Meekness. Meekness toward other people forgives and forbears and puts aside anger and malice and revenge and gossip. You know, I really think there's, there's one statement Watson made that just grabbed me. And grab me in the way of conviction. Hope it will you. I'm going to close with this. But Watson said, a lack of meekness gives evidence to a lack of grace. A lack of meekness gives evidence to a lack of grace. That is, when God's grace penetrates our heart, not empty religion, not not Phariseeism, not churchianity, not, not Christless Christianity, but when grace really penetrates our life. We see that we stand by Him alone. It's not our life, it's not our strength, it's not our wisdom, it's not our smarts. But it's by the grace of God. A lack of meekness may very well be an evidence of a lack of true grace. Let's pray. Father, it is a great is a great thing to know amazing grace. Not just the song, but the reality. But Lord, it's a great thing to know the freedom that comes from our chains falling off, and us being set free. Not by a governmental fiat, not by a governmental decree, but being set free by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ and God alone. Father, I pray that you will I pray that you will give us an understanding of meekness. Not weakness, not a doormat, not a pushover. 
But one who refuses, refuses to react in kind toward people. Lord, I confess to you, I struggle with that. But I I pray, Father, that you would shape me and shape us into a counterculture person that lives differently from the way the world lives. A peculiar people, you called it in Scripture. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.